The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. continue our series of meditations through the little letter of 2nd John. 2nd John, we come today to verses 10 and 11. Let me read again for you the entire letter. 2nd John, beginning at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but but may win a full reward." Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. Let's ask his Holy Spirit to write it into our hearts this morning. Father John here tells us so firmly how absolutely crucial it is that we embrace and carry with us the teaching of Christ, the teaching that he is indeed the Son of God who has become flesh for our salvation. John's love, as we hear here, is is intolerant of uh, the poison of the lies of the enemy. And he calls the church also to be intolerant uh, of those lies, uh, that love demands that. Love demands commitment to the truth. Father, we confess, um, even as we are here at a school that is committed to truth, we're not unaffected by the influence of the culture around us, uh, by the relativism, by the emphasis on toleration, the emphasis on uh, respecting any and every viewpoint, and the challenge to absolute claims of truth such as you make in your word. Father, teach us to be committed to truth out of love for you and love for the people who need to know the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We pray in his name. Amen. John says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Wow. Tough words. Tough words. What does John mean by that? Why is John so intense on that? Uh, what is the context in which John is speaking? I read those verses and I think, I've thought about two titles for this, and I don't know which one you like better. The Intolerance of True Love, or When Courtesy Becomes Cruelty. Either one, because John says there's a place where being courteous to certain people is really cruel to other people. You take your pick. But that's what John is, is getting at here. He's continuing that commitment to truth and love belonging together, as we've heard throughout this letter. He's writing, as we heard several weeks ago when we were in verses 7, 8, and 9, writing especially because, as he says, there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world who do not confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. And so he's been emphasizing that the two, truth and love, have to, have to go together. Walking in the truth is keeping the Father's great old commandment to love one another. And this love for one another means that we cannot tolerate the lie that denies or refuses to confess the reality of the Incarnation. That God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, for the sake of offering himself as the sacrifice for our sins, became our human brother. Christ come in the flesh in order to become the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of all believers everywhere in the world throughout all of history. So John says, if someone does not bring this teaching... Slam the door in their face. He's not just talking about how you treat Jehovah's Witnesses who come to your door or those two 20-something Mormon elders with the little name tags. He's not talking about that primarily. We'll look at the background of that in just a minute. But John is talking about treating purveyors of the lie that denies the incarnation with great seriousness. And that strikes a lot of people as just plain narrow close-minded, C.H. Dodd, 20th century British New Testament scholar, um, good things to say on the parables and some other things, insightful, worth consulting. But when he comes to Second John, especially these verses, he just can't go there. In fact, uh, he, I think, caricatures what John is saying by, by saying basically we can't follow John's narrow-minded example of ostracizing people whose opinions we dislike. People whose opinions we dislike. He says, if we do that, how are we ever going to come to agreement with one another if we just close them off like that? Was Dodd right? Is John too intolerant? And if not, how does John's direction to us in these maybe shocking to us verses, how does it play out in our day? Well, remember the, the backdrop, which we learned from other New Testament passages, that in these early decades of the Christian movement uh, after Jesus' um, incarnation, his earthly ministry, his resurrection and ascension, there were many traveling teachers going out in Jesus' name. Actually, it, it started in Jesus' own ministry 
When he sent out the 12, we read in Matthew chapter 10 that he said, wherever you go to any town or village, find out someone worthy in that town and stay in their home until you leave. Whoever receives you receives me. And uh, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. It says basically the same thing when he sends out the 70 or the 72 in Luke chapter 10. Find a home, stay there, eat what they put on the table in front of you, don't move from house to house, and these people will be recognized by God for showing hospitality, not just to you, but to me. You see that dynamic going on in the book of Acts. Lydia, outside, along with the other women outside the city gate in Philippi, comes to faith in Jesus, and her first instinct, her immediate instinct, is to say to Paul and Silas and their team, you all come and stay in my home. And we gather by the end of Acts 16 that that home had become really the center of the house church there because all the brothers gathered when Paul and Silas were released from prison in Lydia's home at that place. So that goes on. And actually, 3 John is another beautiful portrait of that. The next letter, which John, the elder apostle, writes to Gaius and commends Gaius for taking in the brothers, strangers as they are, they testify to your love before the church, and you send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So we ought to support people like these, since they're not accepting help from unbelievers. Uh, we can be fellow workers with them in the truth. And the early church continued that. There's an intriguing passage. Well, we don't have time for much of it, but a little bit. In the teaching of the 12 apostles, so-called late 1st century, probably, maybe early 2nd, uh, which gives a lot of instructions for how to tell a faithful prophet or missionary from an unfaithful one. First of all, it has to do with what they teach. Whoever teaches you these things that were previously said, welcome him. But if the teacher is distorted, twisted, and teaches a different teaching leading to destruction, don't listen to him. And about missionaries and prophets, let that dogma of the gospel guide you. Uh, oh, and by the way, there are some other things, too. If he stays one day, that's good. If he stays two, okay. But if he insists on staying three days, he's a false prophet. Kick him out. And if when he leaves, all he wants is some bread to get him to the next place, that's fine. But if he asks for silver, uh-uh, false prophet. Ignatius, around the same time, talks about false teachers, docetists, really, denying the reality of the incarnation, and he calls them wild beasts in human form. And he said, don't meet them, don't welcome them, don't receive them, don't get together with them, just pray for them, that God would give them repentance. So the church absorbed John's concern here because the church was seeing the reality of the importance of the incarnation. John Stott, responding to Charles Dodd's criticism, said John is not just saying ostracize people whose opinions you don't like. John's concern is about official teachers, those who carry this teaching to a new location, to wherever the elect lady, the church, and her members, her children are living. And carrying this, claiming to be official teachers, but they deny the incarnation. And Stott points out exactly rightly that it's because denying the incarnation 
is nothing less than spiritual poison. Stott says it this way, if John's instruction still seems harsh, it's probably because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of human souls is greater than ours. And because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is really indifference to the truth. Now, Stott's an evangelical. Expect that from him. But also Rudolf Schnackenberg, Roman Catholic, historical critical, sees the same thing here in John's letter. Uh, and he says, just as Paul calls down destruction on those who would destroy God's temple, that is the church, citing 1 Corinthians 3, just as the author of Jude brings all his guns to bear against the heretical teachers of his time, so too does the elder show his combative side, which springs from his responsibility for the church. From his responsibility for the church. One evangelical, one Roman Catholic historical critic, but they see that John is moved here by love. A love that protects people from spiritual poison. There's a point at which courtesy toward purveyors of the lie becomes cruelty toward those who may be influenced by them. If you really deeply love people, you're not going to lend aid and comfort to the enemy who may be flying under the flag of Jesus but denying the Lord they claim to represent. So, got that? How does that affect us here? This is not a place where we're really tempted to downplay the incarnation, I think. There are a lot of seminaries and schools of theology, North America, Europe, other places, where they need to hear this because, frankly, the incarnation is viewed as archaic or old or a very late development in the life of the church, far from Jesus and his original humble teaching. Many of those schools are older, more famous, more respected than our young little school here in this town called Hidden, Escondido, Hidden. Almost certainly the founders of those schools at the beginning believed in the real Christ who's fully God and fully man, who came in the flesh, who was crucified in the flesh, who rose again in a body that could be touched, that could eat, that was real and true. But now, in a lot of those schools, that view is viewed as archaic, mythological, debunked outright, or explained away, or purged of its offensive fixation on the material world and on the miraculous power of God. You won't hear that advocated here. You may be required to read somebody who holds that here, and we don't apologize for that. And as you go out into whatever ministry the Lord calls you to, the academy, the church, wherever it is, you maybe need to keep reading that kind of stuff. But don't be persuaded by it. You need to read it so that you know what people are hearing, what they're hearing in TV specials that come up around Easter time or Christmas time or what they're hearing in their university classrooms. You need to be aware of it, but don't be persuaded by it. Remember John's clear-eyed warning here, that those who don't bring the teaching of the Incarnation, in fact, are bringing spiritual poison to others. So there's one implication. A second 
I was just thinking about this last night, actually, and I tucked this in, and there's, we really don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. Take a minute or two. Did you notice when John describes the false teachers, he focuses not on the fact that they deny something, but on the fact that they refuse to affirm something. Did you notice that? The deceivers go out and they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, verse 7. Obviously, he means they deny it, but what they're, not, what they're doing is not confessing it, not affirming it. Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in this teaching, this is verse 9, does not have God. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, it's not what they say, it's what they refuse to say, what they fail to confess, this incarnate Christ. And that reminded me of a discussion that's been going on for, I don't know, four, five, six years, probably longer in some circles, but it became visible several years ago. And you may be aware that there have been vigorous discussions in the circles of frontier missions and especially Bible translations about so-called Muslim idiom translations. Uh, translations that, uh, for the sake of avoiding misunderstanding, their advocates would say, and some of their critics would say, maybe for the sake of avoiding offense that needs to come, uh, translators are searching for some alternative terminology to describe the relation of the first and second person of the Trinity other than Father and Son. Father and Son. Just exactly a year ago today, I did not remember this, I checked on the websites, just exactly a year ago today, uh, the World Evangelical Alliance Special Committee issued its report that it had been asked to prepare by SIL International and Wycliffe Global Alliance because of the dispute over this issue within those translation bodies. Uh, so they appointed an independent Bible translation review panel to consider whether terms equivalent to father and son in English or pater and huios in Greek were absolutely non-negotiable in Bible translations as you move into other languages. Uh, the panel worked hard, worked carefully, and as I say, exactly a year ago today, they published their report, and its central conclusion was these familial terms, father, son, or whatever the equivalent is in other languages, are absolutely essential to faithfully communicate scriptural revelation about the Trinity and the identity of Jesus. Absolutely essential. Some people didn't like that, that they were that clear and that crisp. Um, actually, just this month, the World Evangelical Alliance, following up on the request from SIL and Wycliffe, has appointed now a committee to continue to interact with them to see how that works its way out, establish policies and procedures uh, about using what they call divine familial terms, father, son, in translation. Well, that's far away from you, right? As it turns out, this year I will be on the PCA Committee of Commissioners for Mission of the World, which means that one of my homework assignments between now and the PCA General Assembly is to read part two 
of the PCAGA's ad interim committee report on study committee report on insider movements. Part one was about 80 pages single spaced, specifically on these translation issues. Part two is 300 pages single spaced on other related matters to insider movements, relationship between believers and the mosque, uh, churches, and so on. Uh, wow. I didn't know I was signing up for that. But here is one of our denominations deeply concerned about this. And not just Reformed denominations, the Assemblies of God were very concerned about trends in Wycliffe and now are more reassured that Wycliffe has heard this report from the World Evangelical Alliance. Far away? Yeah, sure. Frontier missions? Absolutely. But the issues concern us as well. Not just in the 1040 window, but everywhere we must be concerned to carry the teaching. Not just to not deny it, but to carry the teaching. Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, the one and only Redeemer, for the glory of God and for the spiritual well-being of those to whom we minister the word, those with whom we interact, wherever the Lord calls us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us grace to pre present your word lovingly and winsomely to one and all and give us such a strong love for you and other people that we will uh, by no means fail to confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, the one and only Savior, of humanity. Father, give us that wisdom and that grace, that boldness and that kindness to be willing to speak the truth into people's lives, whether they're eager to hear it or not, because we know it is by this truth that your spirit works to cause your children to be born anew from above and brought into your family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.